Welcome to another episode of Life Across Borders, a World Relief miniseries. In part one of this two-part conversation, World Relief President Scott Arbeiter joins Jenny Yang and Matthew Sorens to discuss the current increase of unaccompanied minors arriving at the U.S. southern border. Well, thank you everyone for joining us for this important conversation and a special thanks to Jenny Yang and Matt Sorens, our staff at World Relief who have led us so ably in these types of complex conversations for uh, many years. Um, I think I'd like to start with this question. Uh, tell us more about what's happening at the border and, and is it the crisis that we're hearing about from some of the news reports? Yeah, thanks so much, Scott. So recently, the U.S. government released the number of apprehensions along the U.S.-Mexico border that occurred in February, and they are up significantly, rising from between 70,000 and 80,000 apprehensions monthly since October to just over 100,000 apprehensions last month. That's a high number, though it's worth noting that the numbers being reported don't actually mean that 100,000 people were apprehended because many of these individuals were actually apprehended several times. The Border Patrol often simply turns back most adults whom they apprehend, such that many simply try again and sometimes try again, 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 and again. It's also less than half the number of apprehensions 20 years ago this month, so it's far from unprecedented. So it's not unprecedented, it is growing. Matt, can you give us a sense of what's causing the current increase? Yeah, um, there's several reasons for the increase in numbers. Um, so early last year, and early in the pandemic, President Trump closed the border, uh, even to most asylum requests, under a public health law called Title 42. And President Biden has, for the most part, kept that policy in place, at least for the time being. So the majority of individuals who are apprehended at the border are turned away, even if they express a fear of persecution. But one dynamic that has changed is that Title 42 is no longer being used to expel unaccompanied minors. So because of that change, the number of unaccompanied minors who are apprehended, not surprisingly, has increased significantly over the past month. And we have some reason to think it's continuing to increase uh, in, into March. While Title 42 was being applied even to unaccompanied children, uh, they were being sent back to Mexico or to their countries of origin, and except for a, a few weeks when the courts restricted that process. And World Relief has at that time joined a number of other Christian organizations in objecting to that policy uh, when it was first implemented because uh, you know, we were really concerned about the effect on vulnerable children who were in many cases being returned right into the hands of those who would traffic or abuse them. In fact, we helped, uh, we helped unite voices of Christian child protection and anti-trafficking ministries and denominations and more than 25,000 everyday citizens in urging the previous administration to halt this process which we saw as a real emergency for vulnerable kids. So the number of, of, the number of unaccompanied minors apprehended has now increased significantly, but we still believe it's a safer situation for children than just simply being expelled uh, and sent back to danger. So uh, it's also worth noting that while the number of unaccompanied kids was, has, was significantly higher last month than the previous months, there's still at this point, the reported numbers have been below the peak levels of 2019. That could change as we get numbers for March in the coming weeks. And, and one other thing I think it's worth noting is that um, for asylum seeking families, there's also been a change, not for those who are showing up today, but who for those who showed up in many cases a year or more ago, who've been required 
um, to wait in Mexico, uh, which is often meant waiting in informal, basically refugee camps or church-based shelters on the Mexican side of the border under a program called Migrant Protection Protocols or MPP. Um, so they're waiting there in Mexico for their chance to request asylum in the United States. And there, that has been the process for, for well over a year. Uh, those families are now slowly being allowed into the United States to await the rest of their process in the US. And from the reports that we've heard from partners on the border, that's actually been a very orderly process. It's going quite smoothly. There's COVID testing for all those who are being processed to ensure everyone's um, public health. Um, most of those families will spend a few days on the US side of the, side of the border and border communities and then travel throughout the country to await their, their court dates in the United States to determine if they'll be granted asylum or, or some other legal opportunity to stay lawfully in the United States. Jenny, there's a great deal of attention rightly being paid to unaccompanied minors. Tell us more about who they are and why they're arriving at the border alone. Sure. So an unaccompanied minor is simply anyone under 18. Some are small children, but most of them have actually been an adolescent who for one reason or another crossed the border without a parent or a legal guardian. The reasons that they make this trip are, are pretty varied, but often it's these kids who are making these trips because of threats of violence, particularly from gangs that are currently preying on young people, um, or oftentimes they're seeking to be reunited with parents or other families that are already in the United States. It's important to keep in mind that about 40% of these children already have a parent residing in the US with whom they are aiming to be reunited. So as you can imagine, a child traveling without a parent across race countries is incredibly vulnerable. And tragically, many are exploited and abused along the way. The fact that so many make this trip knowing about these risks speaks to the desperation of their situations in their countries of origin, which are mostly in Central American countries of Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. Um, in the United States, because we recognize these specific vulnerabilities, we have appropriately, in our view, treated unaccompanied children differently than we have treated adults. So back in 2008, with broad bipartisan support in Congress and after significant lobbying from many Christian anti-trafficking organizations, President Bush signed the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, I'm sorry, the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act or the TVPRA, which includes important provisions governing how unaccompanied children should be treated. So specifically under this law that combats trafficking, unaccompanied children from non-contiguous countries, so not Mexicans or Canadians, should be transferred from the custody of the Border Patrol, which is not equipped or primarily focused on caring for children, to the Department of Health and Human Services Office of Refugee Settlement, or ORR, within 72 hours. So from there, ORR works with a network of care providers, many of them faith-based organizations, to provide child appropriate care while they identify a sponsor within the US, which is almost always a parent or another relative. In a few cases, kids uh, have been placed in licensed foster homes, and then eventually they go to immigration court where a judge will determine if they either qualify to stay lawfully in the United States or not. The aim of this law is to really protect vulnerable kids and ensure that they receive due process and are not returned to violence persecution or traffickers when they may qualify under US law to stay and be protected here. That's really helpful, Jenny. Matt, um, I can see how the distinctions between really important from a legal perspective, but can you explain how each of these different groups is currently being treated by the US government? Yeah, I, I think it's helpful to break this into basically four distinct categories. So you've got unaccompanied children, 
You have single adults. You have families. So that is parent or parents and child or children. Um, and then I'm going to families that you have both those who arrived probably a year or more ago who've been waiting there along the border for their chance to apply. And then those who are, who are arriving today to seek asylum. And I think a lot of the media coverage around those border dynamics has blurred these distinctions. So they're really important to understand because they dramatically impact how individuals and families are being processed or not processed right now. So just to go through each of those four groups, unaccompanied children we've already talked about. Currently, they're being processed mostly in line with the Trafficking Victims Protection Reauthorization Act that Jenny mentioned. So with the troubling caveat that in many cases right now, children are being backed up in border patrol facilities for longer than the 72 hours that the law requires. And uh, that's because the, the administration is trying to rapidly increase capacity within the network of, of shelters and organizations that are equipped to care for children. But um, they're not, there isn't capacity there right now. So kids are being backed up um, in facilities that are not designed for kids. And um, the federal government is using larger and in some cases less regulated surge shelters. Um, and I should say that's the Office of Refugee Resettlement that's doing that. I would say from our perspective, that's certainly not ideal. We'd rather kids be in a smaller, more family-like situation, but they're better than being backed up in border patrol holding facilities, which are really not appropriate for kids. And again, all of that is better than simply being expelled back to situations of danger, which is what the policy was for most of 2020. Then you've got single adults. So, you know, in February, that was 70% of the border patrol apprehensions. And those folks under Title 42, that public health law, are currently just being um, expelled back, even if they profess a credible fear of persecution and would like to request asylum. For those individuals, the border simply remains closed. Then for families who arrived, you know, a, a while back, so probably a year or more ago, who have been put into that uh, MPP program, uh, Migrant Protection Protocols, they've been waiting in Mexico for a long time. Uh, now, under the new administration, those families are being tested for COVID and then allowed in groups in, to enter the United States through a few different ports of entry along the southern border. From there, there are nonprofits and churches on the US side of the border that are helping provide a warm meal, a change of clothes, and a place to sleep for a night or two, and then helping to coordinate transportation to interim destinations throughout the US. And um, most of those families actually already have extended family eager and willing to host them when they arrive. And then there's also World Relief Offices in many of those communities that are able to help in partnership with local churches when while those families await their court hearings to determine if they will qualify for asylum or not. And then lastly, there's a family that would show up today to request asylum. Um, so this is not those who arrived uh, a while back, but those who are arriving currently. And they are at this moment still being turned away under Title 42, just like single adults. Uh, except in some very limited circumstances where the Mexican government has indicated it cannot take families, for example, with very small children, and in a few other limited cases. I would say from our perspective, one concern with the continued invocation of Title 42 to expel asylum-seeking families, I mean, beyond the obvious concern that we could be sending families back to genuine situations of persecution, it, it's that some families are sufficiently desperate that when they hear that unaccompanied children are being processed, but those with their parents are not, uh, some parents may make the really horrendously difficult decision to send their kids alone across the border because they're un because they'll be safe, and that actually could be contributing to the to the increase in the number of unaccompanied children who obviously require a lot more care and resources to process than would a, a child with his or her, her parents.
Jenny, with the increasing number of people who are presenting themselves at the border, we know a lot of them are coming out of what is known as the Northern Triangle in Central America. What is happening there that is causing so many people to want to leave their country and present themselves at the border? So there's no singular factor, which is part of the reason why asylum requests are oftentimes so complicated. It's oftentimes a combination of extreme poverty, threats of violence, corruption at the government level and natural disasters. Uh, for example, in Honduras, it has one of the highest rates of poverty in the Western Hemisphere, hemisphere with most Hondurans surviving on less than $5.50 per day, a dynamic that's actually been exacerbated by the shutdown of the Honduran economy intended to halt the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the country also has some of the highest homicide rates in the world, nearly 10 times the rate in the United States much of which is fueled by gang violence and lucrative drug trafficking and targeted in particular at young people. So furthermore, two devastating hurricanes have hit the country in late 2020, leaving many homeless. In El Salvador and Guatemala, they also have similar, although slightly different dynamics, all of which were further exacerbated by the US government's decision in 2019 to cut almost all foreign assistance to these three countries, a decision World Belief and other Christian organizations warned at the time was not only harmful to the vulnerable, but also counter-effective to the goal of reducing the number of migrants coming to the United States. So those funds, which largely went to non-governmental organizations, including many faith-based organizations, were effectively helping to address these root causes of poverty, corruption, and violence that made people so desperate that they would make a dangerous journey to the United States. Matt, we've talked about asylum. Can you remind us just what asylum is and who qualifies and yeah well so asylum which is codified in international treaties to which the u.s is a party as well as the refugee act that was passed by congress back in 1980 uh, is basically the idea that our country and i should say many other countries as well has committed to not send an individual who reaches our nation back to a situation where they face a credible fear of persecution on account of their race religion political opinion national origin or social group so to request asylum, you must either be within the United States. Uh, so for example, someone who came in on a tourist visa or be at the border of the United States. Uh, the US, uh, the, our laws explicitly allow you to request asylum even if you did not enter the country lawfully. So one of the, change, the challenges in recent years has been that as the US has required those who walk up to the port of entry, so you know the bridge between Mexico and the United States and request uh, asylum there, they have been asked to wait very, for very long periods of times. And so more and more have decided to cross the border unlawfully and avail themselves of the opportunity to request asylum there. And it's important to understand those individuals are usually not trying to evade the border patrol. They're actually looking for them um, with the intention of requesting asylum. So then once someone who arrives at the border indicates that they want to request asylum, whether they went up to the port of entry or they crossed between ports of entry, then our government usually conducts a credible fear interview to determine if they have a plausible case. Uh, if they do not, they're usually deported, but if they can pass that preliminary test, then they are able to proceed with their case. And in some cases, those individuals or families are held in detention facilities while they wait for their immigration court hearings. But in other cases, particularly when there's no reason to think that they pose any threat to public safety or when they have relatives or friends ready to host them, and especially when there are children involved, those uh, those asylum seekers are allowed to wait for their court hearings within the U.S., uh, often with a GPS-equipped ankle bracelet to ensure that they show up for immigration court when it's their turn. 
I think it's worth noting that the Department of Justice records indicate that more than 80% of asylum seeking families and more than 99% of those with legal representation actually do show up for their court dates when they're allowed into the United States to wait uh, outside of detention. The last thing I'd say on this is it's, it's really important to acknowledge that there's no single story that encompasses the hundreds of thousands of asylum seekers who have requested protection from the United States in recent years. Some have really clear cases legally. Some, even though they may have very sympathetic situations fleeing extreme poverty, really do not qualify for asylum, which is legally reserved for those with a credible fear of persecution. Some may really very much fear violence, but they might have trouble documenting that fear or trouble documenting the credibility of that fear. They, they might only really have their own, their own testimony and not a situation that was you know, documented by newspapers or academic researchers. And then there's others who credibly fear violence, but they can't demonstrate that it is related to their race, religion, or one of the other reasons under US law. And then asylum decisions are also incredibly subjective. And the one evidence of that is the reality that there are some immigration judges in the United States who approve less than 5% of cases that they hear, while other immigration judges approve more than 95%. Historically, it's about half of asylum requests that are ultimately approved by immigration judges, but that has actually declined to less than 30% in the last fiscal year, fiscal year 2020, as the eligibility guidelines have been more narrowly defined and because so many asylum seekers have been, not been allowed into the United States where they could find a lawyer, but have been required to wait in Mexico where it's obviously very difficult to find a, a US-based legal representative. Well, well, this is uh, complex and it's human and it's personal and there are real people involved with every one of the stories that we're referencing here. Uh, Jenny and Matt, thanks for this conversation and the depth and wealth of the information you've given to us today. And I think for most of us, next question is, so what can we do? But for that, we're going to have to wait for part two of this conversation, which will be released on our blog next week. Uh, in the meantime, I'd encourage anyone who's listening uh, to this to learn more about our work in the U.S. on our World Relief website and think about how you might join us as we work towards creating communities of love and welcome for our immigrant neighbors. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Life Across Borders. To learn more about World Relief and get involved, visit www.worldrelief.org. And join us on social media. We are at World Relief on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.